Welcome to this Niche AudioCast. My name is Will Patch. I'm the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader here at Niche. Today you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen on the go. You can find all the resources that are mentioned as well as the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz insights. Enjoy. Good afternoon to those of you on the East Coast and good morning uh, for, for what little of it there is left for the rest of the country. I uh, just want to say we'll get started here in just a minute or two. Uh, for those who aren't familiar uh, with using GoToWebinar uh, in the past, you'll have a panel on the right side. That's where you can submit questions. Uh, you'll be able to, to see everything there. Um, and we'll dive right in. I am just beyond thrilled. Uh, I'm so excited uh, that, that we're able to get two people that, that I look up to so much and, and just uh, great professionals. They, they were able to speak on a topic similar to this, uh, actually at Indiana ACAC for a new counselor, um, sort of that orientation that we all do. And, and I just wanted to have them sort of reprise that role as, as experts in data-driven enrollment. Uh, so we have DJ Menifee, uh, Vice President for Enrollment at Susquehanna University. And I, I had to practice that, so I didn't say Susquehanna, but <laughs> uh, and Sasha Timi, Assistant Vice Provost and Executive Director of Admissions at Indiana University Bloomington. So thank you both for coming in. Uh, with a few little housekeeping things here uh, that always come up. Uh, this is going to be uh, recorded. You'll get the recording tomorrow. Uh, if you want to share it or, or listen to it again, it'll also be in podcast version on the Enrollment Insights podcast. Uh, you'll get all that in your email tomorrow morning, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, you can see the recording of this on the blog. If you want to get there the quick way, it's niche.bz insights. Uh, and then if you have questions, comments, thoughts today, we did get a record number of questions submitted in advance. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to those first and then uh, get into the rest as, we, as we're able. Uh, I do like to end about 10 minutes early just so you can sort of prep before your next meeting, because there is always that two o'clock meeting. Uh, so as you have questions, just drop that in the questions panel on the right side there. So first up here, we'll dive right into uh, the meat of it. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with Sasha first. What does it mean to be data-driven enrollment management? Well, thank you, Will. I am, I just got to say, I'm so excited to be here with you and DJ and to share some of our experiences, yes, but also get to learn from the conversation. So great initial question and uh, appropriate topic, definitely, for what we're all experiencing. So to be data-driven, by definition, means that decisions or actions are determined by or dependent on the collection uh, or analysis of data. So in our world, predictive analysis, financial aid leveraging, digital marketing, AI, big data, they've all become part of our regular vocabulary and that of an enrollment manager. Um, but additionally, being data-driven or data-informed when thinking about enrollment management also requires qualitative understanding of, and those would be of the student experiences, key drivers, behavioral or academic needs, and this little thing called choice. <laughs> Um, so it's the, really the combination or the intersection, if you will, of the qualitative and quantitative that will really allow us as enrollment leaders to have the information that our teams need in order to know when, when to embrace sweeping change or when simple solutions may be all that is necessary to achieve our institutional enrollment goals. 
um, and ultimately to be more proactive and less reactive, which sounds interesting given the last 18 months. But that's how I would uh, summarize. Any, any other uh, thoughts there, DJ? Or is that, that the perfect summary? I would say I think Sasha summed it up well. Uh, and like Sasha alluded to earlier, I'm happy to be here with the two of you and I look forward to the conversation. Uh, I summed it up similarly and I just referenced the things that show up in our definition as an institution for enrollment management. So thinking about college selection and what all impacts the college selection process, the transition to college, retention, persistence, when we look at figures, so net tuition or total student revenue, and then collectively how we look at student outcomes uh, and then and how we use the data uh, in many ways, obviously, to inform our decisions, but also initiatives to pursue directions to go or not to go, um, resource requests and resource allocation, uh, and then how we measure and assess all of those things in relationship to targets, right? So whether those are short-term, mid-term or long-term targets, how are we using all of the data uh, to inform the decisions that we intend to make, the directions we intend to go? Um, and I think more broadly, how to shape or share the narrative, how to share the story. Uh, because if you're just looking at a set of data and, and expecting everybody to understand it and interpret it, uh, that can be more challenging. But when you use that information to help shape the story and to share the narrative, uh, it resonates much more with folks and, and can help you move in a variety of different directions. Yep, my my previous manager always said that you never provide data without context. You know, there's got to be that story, right? Second question here, and I think this gets to where some people will say, "Oh yeah, we, we're data driven. You know, we we always use data to make our decisions." But you know, using it is very different than well, we always report it or we collect it or we have these nice dashboards. Uh, so you know, we're surrounded by data. How are you sifting through it and finding the nuggets that can actually be tactically used rather than just reported. So DJ, what, what thoughts do you have there? So in thinking about the, the, the session that, that Sasha and I once upon a time uh, had the chance to do, uh, it was thinking about the role and responsibility and at that role and responsibility, how are you potentially using data to support your informed decision making? And so I started off to respond to your question by sharing a question. Uh, and that is, is, is what lens are you looking through based on your roles and responsibilities? So obviously I reference it could be an admission counseling professional at various levels. It could be a director or a dean in the admission suite. It could be a vice president. It could be a collaborative partner across the campus community that supports uh, the admission and enrollment uh, process. And so depending on that lens, that may shape how they're not only what access to data they have, but how they may be able to sift through it to make informed decisions or to ask further questions. And so I, I reference a few points. So first I said, well, are we looking through broad demographic trends? If that is what we're looking at the data for, witchy data as an example, which I think will be a part of a, maybe a response later on uh, to, to anticipate high school graduation rates. And then thinking about how does that balance with what your market share of that market actually is um, and how does that also balance with the variation between the anticipated graduate number and those that actually intend to pursue uh, furthering their education, right? Because those aren't always the same things. If you're looking at sensitivity to the financial aid that you've offered in previous cycles, right? So based on whatever that institution's merit and aid strategy may have been in the previous cycles, 
you know, where did we see improvement in the yield? Where did we see areas of opportunity? Did we see an unexpected response to uh, a scholarship uh, tier or a merit strategy more broadly? Um, there are always things that we, we don't necessarily anticipate because we can't always see what our peers in the space are doing, or we can't anticipate a thing like a pandemic happening either. Uh, and so thinking through those pieces, um, are we preparing to pilot a territory or, or think about how we engage students differently? And so in that lens, it's where are our prospects, where are our inquiries, uh, where are we seeing the best conversion from inquiry to application, application to admit to deposit? Where have we experienced success based on how the institution determines success? Uh, if we are piloting, how long are we piloting? If we're trying a new territory, you can't do a visit in a college fair and then just say it didn't work and we're not going back. There may need to be a little bit more longevity and investment there into the space. Um, and where are the new opportunities based on potentially the change in institutional priority? Um, sometimes there's a focus and then based on leadership and strategy of the university, uh, maybe another window of opportunity opens up. And so that may help you sift through and, and think about data differently. Uh, the last example I have before I turn it over to you all and see if Shasta has some other uh, things to share is think about something as simple as how prospective students and families engage your website. Um, tracking or cookies. I, use, I don't like saying cookies because it makes me hungry. Uh, but you're tracking the activity. You get a sense of maybe the most visited web pages. Maybe you go a further tier and you say, well, not simply what are the most visited web pages, but what are the pages visited in pairs or in sequence? Um, and how do we best utilize that? Maybe it's an opportunity for automation, uh, automated messaging. Maybe it's an opportunity for direct follow-up and outreach, or maybe simply it's just an area of opportunity to enhance or to make updates to the website. That's so great. DJ, I love what you said about the, the different lens, because that's so important, the different levels and the different institutional knowledge. I think the only other thing that I put down here uh, was if needing a place to start would be looking at what the current strategic plan is and where enrollment, where the enrollment responsibility falls within that plan. So is it, is the goal, are the goals more student-centered, state or community-centered? Again, with my public lens, that's always something we have to think about. Um, are they academic program-centered, <laughs> revenue-centered? Or in most cases, they're all of the above. And so how do uh, how do we look at where maybe the enrollment gaps are? And then when we're answering those questions, then that would point us towards some of the, uh, some of the pieces or points in the data to center some attention. So thanks. And actually, I, I had something I wanted to follow up with when, when you mentioned that. At your levels and, and where you're at, um, sort of in the, in the structure and the hierarchy, do you want more of the raw data brought forth to you to say, hey, here's what we're collecting? Or do you want really those targeted analyses? Or do you just want, if someone says, hey, I found this and here's a tactic I think we could try and, and sort of just have the context? What's going to, what's works best? Is yes an answer? So it's going to be situation dependent, but I am a huge uh, tableau fan, which means that as one question is answered, I can reorganize that data to answer the very next question that I have. But then also there are situational situations uh, where a thought out proposal and analysis that's already included is definitely going to be the most efficient. So um, I think it, it, it depends, but having all of those available and people that can 
support all of those different scenarios uh, are important. I have nothing to add to that. I was just going to say I concur. It, it depends. Yeah. Uh, but foundationally, I want to have access to as much data as possible. I think the one piece that I always want to be mindful of is while I may like data and I have a, I feel like I have a lens to interpret things and to connect the dots, the other people around you may have a different way to look at the data and, and make the, the connections. And so I think it's also valuable to have multiple lenses looking at similar things because you may infer something different, uh, all of which may help you go towards the goals. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah, I, I suspect there's people listening who are, are saying, well, I, I just live in this very specialized data. Maybe it's the website usage. And just thinking if they just brought this pile of, of information to their VP, to their AVP, to their director, what may be obvious to one person who lives in the data every day, mm-hmm. you know, when you're thinking very high level institutionally, you'd have to shift some gears. You'd have to dive in. You'd have to do some background that would slow things down if they just came with the final product, basically. Exactly. Getting ahead of why I suspect a question was. <laughs> Next up here, aside from all this internal data that we're generating and, and collecting, what outside data sources can help you with planning and forecasting? So Sasha, I'll, I'll kick it over to you first. Sure, there's so much. So there's so much out there that can really inform and, and really ideally complement our understanding of our institutional data. So, oh my goodness, demographic trends, labor market trends, economic trends, social and lifestyle trends, technology, education, competition trends. Um, Each of these categories can actually look completely different if depending on global, national, regional, or state and local perspectives. And in fact, I think of this a lot as a state perspective. So Um, I'll specifically need to center a portion of our strategy around specific state Department of Education or research statistics. So even local Chamber of Commerce, local Economic Development Board, and even local school district data. So, you know, I also think that an enrollment manager, we need to think about outcomes or career data. And some of that seems obvious, but that needs to inform our enrollment strategy. So, for example... If your state by, says by 2025 that 60% of residents should have high-quality post-secondary credentials and that they aim to aggressively promote business startups, then that allows us to think about what our maybe our entrepreneurship program could offer in as a solution. So there's those connections of the outside data and goals that inform our complement our institutional data. And then DJ already mentioned this all, you know, while you know, there's resources out there and they can, how we use them may depend on our institutional structure and our institutional goals. There are some pretty big uh, resources that most institutions will leverage. So large bodies of research such as WICHE or the National Student Clearinghouse and some institutions may partner with research vendors, you know, EAB, Ancura, Human Capital or other search or financial aid leveraging uh, vendors. So they're going to use all of that information in a way that can help, again, complement what they know internally. And then DJ also references to benchmarking among peers when that is uh, available are some of the some of the outside outside resources that we'll use. I think the only addition I would reference would be 
um, the survey data that's out there. Now, mind you, the survey data in many ways, specifically when you think about prospective student and parent audiences, is kind of in time. And so it may not necessarily tell you specifically what they intend to do in the future, but it does give you a sense of what resonates with them and what's their priority uh, and what they tend to use in the sense of, of navigating their college search process. And so that can help you start to make either informed decisions, especially if they're different decisions, uh, or to start to think about how you may segment and message them based upon where they are, uh, what's most important and what's most relevant to them. Um, and, and thinking through not only segmenting or, or should I say designing your communication strategy, uh, but also your website strategy in a way that, that is best oriented to, to meet them where they are and to, to connect them with most important to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up all the sort of cultural things going on too. If there's new factories going up for X, that's going to be in the news. That's going to be something students are talking about. I think we all remember when you have the boom of the CSI and criminal minds, all of a sudden everyone wants to study criminal justice and, and you know, criminal psychology and those programs suddenly boomed on the inside. So, that's right. Yep. Okay. So speaking of benchmarks, we've talked about these. Uh, what benchmarks do you use to actually gauge progress to enrollment go goals? So how are you doing? Where are these check marks? So DJ, what, what do you do? What do you look at? So the, the first thing that I thought of is what goal orientation am I thinking about? So are we talking about short-term goals or within the annual plan, our next enrollment objective is X? Am I thinking more of a midterm strategy based on numbers or based on a partnership? Or am I thinking more long-term with alignment with the university strategic plan through a longer period of time. So the first example I think through when I use benchmarking um, is building the funnel. I, I tend to term it as funnel cultivation, but when I'm thinking about that, it's how is your prospective student and inquiry funnel shaping up? Um, what ingredients should be included in that? I always reference it metaphorically as a bowl of chili or a bowl of soup. You have a good sense based on historical data who tends to show up in your pool and what those ingredients or behaviors tend to look like. So as that pool is shaping up, does it have those ingredients and are those key ingredients growing? Are they flat? Are they in decline? Uh, because that may start to signal what you may see as your applicant pool begins to take shape. Uh, I tend to look at things like conversion rates. And so once we have our inquiry pool and based on terminology, the hand raisers, they showed some level of interest in us uh, versus a prospect who we may have got from a search buy or something of that nature. How do they convert over to the application and how do we get them, right? So if they came from a PSAT, from an ACT, uh, if they came from a partnership with Niche, if they came from a partnership uh, with CapEx, how are those sources performing? Uh, and then we're gonna catch them can compare them to the year prior. Um, and then also step back and say, well, is there anything different about this cycle that maybe makes the way in which we're looking at this comparison um, unfair. Uh, and then thinking about how those populations move through. Uh, as they're admitted, thinking about specific behaviors that you traditionally see, um, where's the visit numbers? Where is the reference to certain academic disciplines that you know tend to be key academic disciplines for you and your enrollment objectives? Uh, depending on what tier you are as an institution based on athletics, how athletic recruitment is doing, we're division three. So they tend to make up anywhere from 26 to 32% of our incoming class. So it is very important for us to have a sense of how they are progressing 
uh, because without their success, we, we're not necessarily going to be in the best position to be successful either. Uh, and then start thinking about other segmentations that may be most meaningful to you. So Sasha referenced earlier, kind of thinking broadly about the university strategic plan um, and where does enrollment fit in that? And so, for example, uh, we have a call within our university plan for us to broaden our articulation agreements and then to connect that to the strategic enrollment plan. Not only is it building articulation agreements, but then what does that mean in terms of growing our transfer numbers? Right. And so I'm paying attention to the movement, not only nationally, so separate from internal institution data, how mobility is happening, but also thinking specifically to our internal data. How are those numbers moving? Same thing for BIPOC student enrollment. If we have a strategy to diversify our campus community with domestic students, uh, as well as international strategy in the university plan, it challenges us to diversify the regions in which we recruit international students. So not only are we broadening that, that scope, but then based on our efforts, are we seeing any activity in direct correlation to our efforts? You know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, the app pool is moving, our admit pool is moving, and look, we're getting deposits, but is that any correlation to where you actually have efforts? Uh, or are, are they not necessarily correlated and they're just, you know, sometimes they're random. Uh, and so trying to make sure that you're looking at that data and then comparing it to year to date and then comparing it to the short-term and long-term goals you may have set for yourself. Absolutely. Everything that he said, I think the only uh, institutional specific example that we had several years ago, we either in, introduced or reimagined three different academic schools. And so the benchmarking that we had done previously had to look very different. And then since then, I think there's been about a new program every year. So quickly getting the, the team acclimated, marketing acclimated, the, um, the benchmarking updated, the new reporting looking at different peer comparisons than we had before introduces new benchmarking expectations from year to year. Yeah, and even little things like when you send out your first Comflow for a junior or senior class can affect your benchmarks. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be the big things, uh, like this next question. Um, <laughs> how, how are you adjusting forecasting based on COVID changes and, and these rolling trends, you know, specifically when you're looking at three and five year trends, that's all gone now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so Sasha, what, how are you adjusting? First, we have a good chuckle. <laughs> we try and have ground ourselves in uh, reality, make sure everyone's okay. And then we, we dive in. So I'm guessing, as you said, well, most of us are modeling on two or three year snapshots and outcomes. Uh, so with COVID spanning, over two cycles, uh, that becomes difficult, if not nearly impossible. So let's lovingly call this data chaos theory, <laughs> where we look for underlying patterns within apparently random states of disorder and irregularity. So let's just, we'll just start there. Uh, but, you know, for example, I had mentioned, you know, economic trends, we certainly have economic instability. And what does that mean for higher education? There's always this interplay with how the economy is doing and how higher education is, is viewed. So recent, not too far, you know, 10 years ago, we witnessed uh, the impact of another dramatic economic in certain situation. Uh, now, the reason, uh, as well as the national versus global impact is certainly different, yet are there similar patterns or trends we can identify? Are there experiences or outcomes that we saw 
two to three years after the recession that we might be able to apply here. Those are things that, those are conversations certainly that we're having. We're also looking at what new information is available as soon as it is available, both internally and externally. So for instance, um, we were really encouraged to see that Witchy's report was celebrating increased high school graduation rate, which could mean that more students would be available in future pools than expected, because we're all watching for 2025, 20, 26. Uh, so that was great. Well, then COVID presented a new threat to high school graduation. So hold that previous thought, and we'll see how that comes through. But we're watching the information as, as soon as it's available. And then internally, certainly, how have our institutional needs changed based on lower or higher enrollment outcomes and enrollment targets? So our institution experienced higher enrollment. Well, what will that mean for targets in the future? And then will that trend stick or will student choice kind of swing back to a more to its previous balance between private and public? And will we see like, not unlike the recession or previous years, will we see different trends or need different enrollment strategy based on student academic interest? So we saw, we heard a lot in the news about, I think they called it the Fauci effect, where we saw a number of students uh, who were expressing interest in medicine. You mentioned uh, our CSI days uh, from a few years ago. Um, but what about education majors? What about other majors that our communities and our nation desperately need as well as medical professionals. So how do we as higher ed respond to that and, and how do we align our resources accordingly? So those are, I mean, all of the same benchmarking attempts that we have been doing where we do try and make sense based on previous two cycles are still there, but now we're trying to take in all of the same information and different information as it becomes available that may have a, a pandemic response specific uh, input to offer. So it's, it's like so much of what we're experiencing now. There's a yes and to everything that, that we're doing. So those are just some of the things that we're kind of watching for, in addition to everything that DJ mentioned for benchmarking. I would just share, you know, when you look through an institutional lens, the COVID years, as I would call them, or refer to them as, as 2020's incoming class and 21's class, uh, those years were more similar for us than any of the previous years, which had a little bit more consistently with themselves. And so instead of using three-year average, 19 wouldn't have necessarily helped us in my perspective, in my enrollment leadership team's perspective, and even our senior leadership team's perspective, and assessing where we may actually be, uh, which is a realistic goal for the class of 22. And so we were using that two-year span. We also started to... to poke and prod a little bit at the, the algorithm, so to speak, that was contributing to the projections historically to tighten the reins a little bit. Uh, and, and we would rather, you know, surprise somebody uh, than, than underperform. And so really thinking about how realistic can we make this so that if anything, we're on target or better versus putting it us in another position where we may underscore the enrollment objective that we had set. I think the other piece that COVID had us thinking through, we had to introduce something new, right? Uh, well, at least for most of us, which is virtual engagement. But because that was new, no predictive tool, no predictive vendor could really help like, oh, well, if you have X amount of people attend these, this is what your yield's going to be. 
And so starting to be able to assess, okay, well, now that we had a full cycle for students who attended virtual thing, uh, events or virtual engagement programming, how did they yield? Was that different than somebody actually coming to campus? What about if they did a combination of the two? They came to campus for some things and they also did some things for virtual. And then it also led us to think critically about what we wanted to maintain as we started to transition back into, I guess, what we would call some sense of normalcy, uh, where for many instances for us, our, our visit program started to open up a little bit. Uh, we started to lose some of the uh, expectations on um, capacity restraints in, in some cases, depending on the institution, but still holding on to those pieces. The last piece I would say that that the forecasting has has for the pandemic is you know, with so many students, depending on their district, depending on their community, being impacted by the pandemic in different ways, then you're also starting to try to get a sense of well, what does that mean for your academic profile? Um, how accurate is it <clears throat> based on inflation, uh, based on somebody's learning experience, remote versus being in person versus a hybrid approach? Um, and so thinking differently about that in the academic profile as it's showing up. What does that mean, not only for those students and the experiences they've had versus other previous uh, incoming classes that may have had similar makeup and academic profile, maybe exposure to similar classes, but definitely not necessarily the same learning experience based on what the pandemic has done for us. And putting on the, the institutional financial hat for a second, how are you trying to build forecasts for state funding of what's that going to look like with, you know, there's less income to the state typically? How's that going to affect us on the on the back end for this year, the next coming years? Are you doing any of that level of forecasting? Is that further up the food chain? Well, for us, I mean, certainly we are in a performance funding model state. So it's our contributions to the economy, to the, have an economic impact are certainly measured by our state and inform directly our funding. So We'll be watching those those closely for sure. And Will, one of the things I would share about my institution's practices is, historically speaking up to this point, um, opportunities for whether it's base or variable compensation uh, have in many ways been tied to how we've performed from a uh, revenue perspective, and that revenue has been specific to student revenue. And so whether you're looking at the collective total enrollment or you're, you're weighing it specifically in relationship to the incoming class, any adjustment to that not only puts us in potential not to hit our revenue objective, but it also may mean that the rest of the campus community may not benefit from uh, a raise. Um, and obviously in these times when uh, being able to retain amazing employees is really tough or to fill vacant positions is really tough, um, any opportunity to be very clear about how one may put themselves in position to obtain additional increases in pay, um, how one can, can consistently be competitive to do that is important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a lot of, lot of weight on your shoulders at that point. So next up here, DJ, what are the current trends you're seeing for applications and enrollments right now, sort of this snapshot in time, early 2022? Well, I will, I will speak specific for myself. Um, I would say as the application season started, um, we were experiencing a lag. Um, and it was 
a lag that caused pause. I wouldn't say it set off all the alarms, but it definitely caused some pause. And we are the size that we have some partners in the space that have a variety of other institutions that they serve in the 100 plus categories. And so we were assessing, well, well how are other partners faring? When will the benchmarking reports uh, that are comparing us to certain cohorts start coming out so we have a good sense of, of how things are? And are we getting a little bit of peace of mind because we're not the only ones in a similar boat uh, based on the lag and the application cycle starting? But I would say over time, we started to see uh, students move a little bit more. Um, and so our, our, our view on our applicant pool and how it's shaping up uh, is much better today than it was uh, a month ago and, and a few months ago. And so we're excited to see that trend. Um, I think the other piece we're paying attention to is because of the impact of the pandemic and limited opportunities to see the campus, um, many of the juniors who then became seniors didn't have the same opportunities to see college campuses in, in the way that their other previous junior classes had. And so we're paying really close attention to the percentage of our pools had a chance to engage and visit the campus. Um, we're also tracking because of the continued momentum, momentum within the test optional or test free slash test blind space, paying close attention to our percentage of students who are applying test optional in comparison to specific to the pan, pan, pandemic class of 2020, but also more broadly to our historical trends to see if there is a, a shift back towards what we were normally seeing as testing and things began to open back up, not necessarily like, like it was, uh, but a little bit more available. Um, and then I think the other piece is still tracking um, the distance from campus, key academic programs uh, as a, a regional private that is very tight and where we tend to enroll our students 150 mile radius in, 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 in that's where 98% of our students come from. And so we are very much uh, focused on what we're seeing within this early part of the cycle to see if we are shaping up similarly in the zero to 50 mile radius, the 51 to 100, and then the 101 to 150. Because again, that is critical for us uh, and being in, co in contention for, for meeting our own objectives in the year. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, since you mentioned test optional, DJ, I'll share. So we uh, at, at IU had adopted a new policy in January of 2020 not knowing that there would be how useful that policy would be uh, beyond what we already imagined. So this fall, about 46% of our enrolling students did enroll uh, having not asked, had a test score considered. And so we were curious, DJ, like you said, kind of how would that look for this fall? And we're seeing actually similar percentage, over 40% of our applicants are still choosing not to have a test score considered. We give them the opportunity to change their minds, so we may see that shift a little bit. Uh, but that has been, to your point, really interesting to observe. I think the other thing that we saw in our early, in our earliest groups, so we opened August 1st, our first, our deadline is November 1st, and we saw more students than expected, a higher proportion of that early pool had actually told us that they were going to complete after November 1st. Uh, in, in the spring, which we, you know, we'll complete them as, as we get the information, but we thought that was really interesting, and we were wondering, and we've been asking counselors this, you know, is there a possibility that students are concerned with how we would view their spring grades? You know, and so maybe they're thinking, I want to I get my application in, I'm so excited, but I want you to see my seventh semester grades. So we've been actually having observed that, and it's leveled off a little bit, but having observed that early trend, we got out there with messaging to, to counselors and to students as in our presentations, talking to them to saying, hey, listen, 
I understand you're going to look at this differently for every student, every institution to which you're applying. But for Indiana, we, we want you to go ahead and complete. We know that there was a pandemic. We know that grades were all of this last year um, after reviewing the credentials of your, your, the previous cohort. So we're watching for that closely, but that was a really interesting early observation that for the reasons we're here today, that the data helped inform. And so something else that we've been modeling that we hadn't necessarily, it hadn't shown up in the same way in, in previous cohorts. And, and you mentioned with visits, DJ, and um, our, our annual senior survey looking at their enrollment process and, and how they searched at college. This year, we had 28% of students say they had not visited any colleges prior to enrolling. Uh, that was almost twice what it was in 2020, which was almost twice what it was and well, a little over twice what it was in 2019. There's just a lot of students who are being forced to make decisions without visiting. And I think that this this class, 2022, is, you know, there's a lot of hope that we can get on campus. Some of them are, some are just hoping to, and we'll have to see, you know, is it going to be slammed with visits in the spring when they're able to get out safely? And, and Will, to, to support that, that, that point, our incoming class for 21, typically as of the decision deadline. So for sense of normalcy, let's say May 1, um, normally 85 to 88% of our incoming class as of May 1 had already been to campus. Uh, with this incoming class, it was 64% as of May 1. So there was a, a big difference. And, and so we made up, we created some different programming over the summer to try to get those students opportunities, but also to make it meaningful for them to help them get prepared for the transition to coming in uh, as a new student to the Susquehanna community. Um, and then one of the other pieces I wanted to make reference to relatively quickly was in this other signals we were seeing early, uh, and we're still seeing it as of today, uh, as of this morning, is we moved into a place where now we are running ahead um, in applications year over year, but where the growth is, is students applying for regular decision versus applying for anything with the word early in it. Mm -hmm. So we started to hear some signals that that anything early kind of put people on pause a little bit. And so while we're up collectively uh, in a given day, we may be running flat or slightly behind in our early action opportunities for applying for admission. But because of the growth, the tremendous growth in those who have submitted their materials, many of which are complete, but apply for regular decision, um, that's another interesting trend that we're seeing is, is they are applying for a, a future time in the, in the applicant cycle. Yeah. Not interesting. Yeah. Similar. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we, we've got some class of 2022 survey data dropping on Monday. So that'll be the 25th for anyone who's listening to this, not live. Uh, okay. and, and there's just a lot of students saying that, Hey, we're, we're researching, you know, I'm very interested in going to college. I'm not ready to start applying yet. Yeah. You know, that's, and here we are that that closed in September. And so at a time where usually there's that rush and there's that feeling of urgency. Nope, let's let's make sure our, our house is in order first. <laughs> yeah. Next question here. Uh, what skills and tools should aspiring enrollment data pros learn? So before I I mean, I can imagine what everybody can imagine what we're about to say, given everything we've just rattled off that is part of this process. So I just want to start with, you should absolutely, if you are new to this work, you should want to do it. So hang on to that. Hang on to your why. DJ and I often tell people, find your why and hang on to it. 
uh, especially in the last year, hold on. Maybe that's what you all you can hold on to. But you should want to do this work. It is lifting and launching the lives of future of students and future citizens, policymakers, change leaders. We're here doing important work. So hold on to that. Uh, but there is so much information out there and, and the gathering the information, but also the synthesizing of it is so important. So learning how to find the data, the resources, both external and internal, that can really provide you with the best information. And knowing your, inst inst your own institution and the enrollment needs is going to be an important first step to identifying the best sources and the best questions to ask. So we talked about, you know, the cliff already, it's coming, it's going to affect different institutions in different parts of the world differently. So knowing how you fit into that. So a few specifics, no particular order, but some things that come to mind often and daily. Uh, I, understanding demographic shifts by your key markets. It's, they are changing. And as I just mentioned, the witchy data, they were changing within the changes. So monitoring how things like high school graduation rate are influencing those. Uh, understanding budget models. So I grew up in enrollment management in admissions. I didn't grow up in financial aid. I didn't, you know, I grew up in a very specific part of this work. Uh, and so over the last eight years, really understanding budget models, how revenue is generated, how it's distributed for your institution, understanding the role of discounting on your campus, how aid is prioritized based on institutional enrollment goals is going to be helpful. It just informs some of your other strategies. Interpreting data is absolutely important. We've discussed that here, but coming back to knowing what questions to ask, we've also referenced that a few different times. There's no shortage of information that's available, but there can absolutely be a shortage of relevant and useful answers based on the questions that are maybe left on the table. And then systems thinking. So again, if you grow up in this work in one particular area, you we know that uh, we know that our work is interdependent, but literally there was never a cohort of students who are recruited, enrolled, retained, and graduated based on one single action of any one unit or office. It just doesn't happen that way. So really understanding and promoting cross-system collaboration, sometimes even integration, uh, and the emotional intelligence to negotiate, we'll call them opportunities. <laughs> along the way is going to be really critical to someone's success. So kind of coming back to the, the budget model piece, uh, you know, optimize, aid optimization and leveraging financial aid could look really different depending on whether your institutional aid funds are provided by a central campus office or if they come from school deans who had other plans for those funds and now you need to articulate shared goals and think across systems and uh, help, you know, see how that optimization can happen from all different funding sources. And then, you know, more and more enrollment leaders really need to have a balance between, again, interpretation and applying data for decision making, but managing the diverse and totally interconnected activities, just even within their organization. So the example I gave was across across units, but even within the enrollment organization is important. We've mentioned vendors here. So a data could suggest that a totally new initiative or solution is needed to address a particular change. But if staffing resources aren't there or, gosh, post-COVID burnout is prevalent, then 
that may not be the best path forward. So really being able to assess both of those together. I think, you know, if the last 18 months remind us, reminded us of, of anything, it's really that learning agility and change acumen are ever critical strategic competencies. And so of all the things we could rattle off that you need to know, knowing how where you sit in those competencies is going to be really helpful to help help you surround yourself by people who, as we always say, are way smarter than you, um, but have different interests, different experiences, grew up in different enrollment environments, uh, and you know can help you think across systems and organizations. Just a few, just a few things. And I would just start with saying the first thing I wrote down is kind of where Sasha ended. Uh, I said, while it, it is beneficial to you to learn systems, to learn how to use tools uh, and to cultivate your skill set, uh, it may at times be even more important to consider deeply who you have around you, uh, because we're, we're not all masters of every craft in this space. Um, and so thinking critically about either who you hire, uh, whose team you may be joining, uh, who you may inherit if you're taking on a leadership role, um, and truly trying to tap into everyone's strength uh, because it may surprise you uh, where skill set lies within those that are around you and, and how collectively speaking uh, you can be very successful. As far as a system piece or tool piece, I started very basic. So it's like, well, what if like they don't have anything, right? It's like, well, maybe they have a, a general Microsoft suite where they can use Excel and learn how to do pivot tables. And so you can put your own data and, and leverage that accordingly. Uh, if you have partners, many partners have their own data, their own dashboarding. Uh, and so spending time trying to learn how to utilize those third party uh, visualization tools or thinking critically about how they can best support you to bring content, to bring ideas, to bring narratives to you um, versus you having to, to do it independently and navigate the tool on your own because we may not have the time, uh, specifically in, in the, the guise of the pandemic. Um, what CRM, if you have one, what CRM is it? What's the functionality? Uh, does it have the ability to do small queries? Does it have the ability to build just-in-time reporting? How sophisticated can the reporting be? How visual is it? Uh, how visual are they? And, and thinking critically about how you can learn how to do that. Or if you your team has a CRM manager or a coordinator or data analyst, uh, becoming their best friend um, and, and helping them maybe hear your questions and being able to provide answers or a narrative to help you understand what all is connected to that question in a in visual form. Um, what is the main system of your university, the SIS system, and how does that connect to your CRM? How does it connect to all the other systems? And what data is going in between all of those systems? And is there any data that would be beneficial for you to have access to that can better support you in the space that you're in? Uh, depending on where you're located across an institution or an organization. Um, and then I think the other piece is, is the skill of just wanting to ask more questions. Um, I think it's easy for us in our space, specifically sometimes when we feel pressure to come up with something relatively quickly, we have some time constraints we're navigating to just simply find the answer. And in many ways, the best answer may be to ask additional questions to dig a, dig a little deeper and we may be surprised by what we find um, and earlier, we both have referenced in some capacity the notion of being able to build a narrative and the notion of being able to connect the dots. You know, you've got a set of data and just stepping back and, and being able to say, OK, this data point of when they came into our system because they partnered with this client, 
mixed with the time of the year when they came into the funnel and based on their marriage strategy, it all aligns to this outcome. So being able to make some meaningful connections in the dots. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the, the starting points is just in general being inquisitive and saying, oh, I wonder and being able to chase that down. And I, I kind of wanted to call it out because I've seen the wheels turning in both of, of you and your body language as we're doing some of this. Uh, we'll, we'll go a little rapid fire here for the last couple uh, you know, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. How are you managing the need for in-person and virtual recruitment tactics? DJ, how are we collecting the data and, and making use of it? So the first thing I want to say, which may not necessarily be data-centric, Will and Sasha, is balance. Um, and I think that balance is going to maybe look different across institutions. So I want to say that first, that how you engage in person versus virtual or how you're looking at the data to make informed decisions. You want to balance it. We can't just keep adding things um, with similar or less resources, right? I think the other piece is is thinking critically about health and safety of your team, um, obviously, and, and in alignment with whatever your institutional policy is. And so, and thinking about the notion that their data may tell you that in-person engagement is much more valuable uh, and the yield percentage may be higher, uh, if your team, the, the, the folks that are in your care, are not feeling as safe as you think they probably could be uh, in any other time, they don't feel comfortable because what our policy is, it's not the same policy at the college fair or the high school they're supposed to be going into. We got a mask requirement wherever you go. They're not wearing masks where I'm at and I don't feel comfortable. You know, it's my, I feel like it's our, as leaders' responsibilities, well, come on home. Like, what's most important is your health and safety and, and your well-being. And so thinking through those pieces. Um, in terms of virtual engagement, what we've done is maintain the virtual initiatives that have been successful for us or the most successful over the last 18 months. So looking at the data based on attendance, based on conversion, based on yield, and saying as we're getting, as we're returning more into some sense of normalcy with on-campus and in-person engagement, that doesn't mean we want to lose these things that have worked for us. And so how do we continue to maintain the young alumni panels, the specific academic discipline panels that were very successful, the virtual uh, programs, whether it's open houses, admitted student Q&As, whatever it was, how do you maintain that and try to balance that out versus the in-person engagement that you're going to do? I think the other piece is, is and Sasha, I would assume, would, would have similar experiences with her team as some of them may have ventured out into the space, they got a travel plan together. Everything looks good. And then, okay, we're moving to virtual, <laughs> right? And so trying to, to navigate that um, and being mindful that this may be one of those other years where it's, it's very hard to try to compare it to the year prior when there in many ways wasn't any in-person you know, engagement. And then maybe in the future year, maybe there's more of a sense of normalcy and it's becoming more normal again but this year may just be that oddity where you've got a portion of people that still don't feel comfortable engaging in some of those environments. They may not feel comfortable coming to a large open house with a whole lot of people, but they may feel comfortable coming to a more personalized experience where they feel like they'll still be able to, to manage and control their personal space. Um, and so I would say that for us, we're probably somewhere between 85%, uh, 15% strategy when it comes to in-person versus virtual engagement but continuously monitoring that data, showing it in our visit reporting. How are we doing in compared to, to years prior for those like events? 
how are those events, if they're stacked, how are they moving students through uh, our funnel? And maybe we see something where we may want to add something a little later because we see something gelling between two synced uh, experiences. Yeah. DJ, I love what you said there about the use of, um, we're experiencing all the same things, and what you said there about the use of, of virtual where it makes sense. And I'm I'm humbled that it took a, a pan, global pandemic for us to think about the access opportunity with virtual. So one of the favorite experiences that I've had is both in our admitted student space, but just recently with our fall open house, having students from over 27 different countries and 35 different states and counties all across the state of Indiana being engaged in one space without having to leave and travel and have those expenses and all the safety concerns that you mentioned, that's an opportunity that we, we can't and shouldn't give up easily. So there, I love what you also said about balance. The yes and has absolutely been something we've had to negotiate and we'll continue to think about how to negotiate from a staff and resourcing perspective. Uh, but what we've been able to do to connect with students in meaningful ways has definitely looked different and hopefully expanded. So thanks for that. We'll do just a real quick last one here. Uh, I, I know we're going a little long. Like I said at the beginning, we had just a record number of questions submitted, so that was fantastic. Uh, just what's what's one thing that you would recommend for someone or an institution to get started if they if this is new to them? What's what's a good first step? Asha, what, what's well, your think, one first? Step? I think DJ alluded to this in his you know, breaking down the tools. So what I thought of for this was just get started somewhere. So, you know, is any reporting available? Even shadow databases that we don't like to talk about or don't support or promote, but that have even rudimentary data points. Can daily or weekly snapshots just be captured? Just start saving them so that they can, when you have maybe more robust opportunities or more complex visualization tools, that those can be uploaded and then considered and reviewed. And then, you know, we've talked about this here a few different times, just start to write down the key questions. What would you like to have answered? What do you think is most important to have answered? And then get more complex from there. I've seen institutions, I've heard of institutions have with limited staffing resources or institutional support use part-time, graduate student, even faculty resources really creatively. So depending on the programs you have in, at your institution, there may, may be collaborative opportunities with statistical faculty. Could be a class project. I've seen those work out really well. So experiential learning. For, I mean, I've just seen so many and heard of so many different creative ways to get this started. But Starting somewhere and asking the right questions, I think, lays a really good foundation for when the resource, for one, making a case that what you, the decisions that could be made and the opportunities that could exist if these resources were made available, but at least when they are, then you have, you know, where you want to, where you want to start. The first thing I wrote was, or thought through was peer and aspirant comparisons. Um, and, and in this instance, it's simple. If we're talking about we don't have the technology to support making data-informed decisions, but these are our peers and this is what they have, um, it doesn't mean you have to get into the, the, the fiduciary responsibility of what that means and how much you know, the institution may have to invest. But what it does mean is oftentimes uh, decisions are driven by what the competition may or may not be doing. And so that may be 
one of the simple approaches. Uh, the other piece I wrote down is cost projection and ROI considerations. So, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody to look into a vendor or look into a, a resource, a technology, getting a sense of how much does it cost to, to, to implement? Uh, what's the difference between if we use our own staff to implement it versus if we need all of you to do all of the work? Uh, what is it if we just partner with a vendor to help manage our, our data, um, you know, outsourcing it? Is that, is that more financially feasible for us? But then thinking through what does that do for us in terms of being able to use and access data to make informed decisions, maybe in a more timely fashion, may allow you to pivot in certain things. You may have long-term plans and for a time it hasn't been working, but you didn't know because you didn't have the data to kind of kind of move through it in real time. Um, the other thing was to, to make sure I, I give a, a plug to, to, to the organization here and to Will, just passing this link to this session. You know, it's like, or other sessions that you've been able to attend that talk about the value of data to support uh, this space that is near and dear to all of our hearts. Um, and then lastly, and I think we've shared this a couple of different times in our thread, you know, use the resources you have from the seat that you have um, and, and start there. Um, and as you start pulling the data together, I think sometimes we surprise ourselves with what we come up with when we actually have a little bit more information that's insightful to help us make more informed decisions. Yeah. All fantastic. I, I know we went a little long here, but thank you so much to to both of you, Sasha and DJ. This was absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, we'll be following up uh, tomorrow morning with an email to the recording to the podcast version. Uh, but thank you so much for both coming in today. Thank you. Yeah. Good to see you both. Yep. Have a great one, everyone, and I uh, hope everyone stays safe.